Years ago, there was a uh, young married couple, and you know how that goes, those of you who have been married before, those early days are a little, little difficult, and you're kind of having to, you know, kind of feel your way through things, and uh, first Sunday that this young couple was married, the uh, new husband walked in and his wife was beginning to prepare lunch before they went to church. And so she took out this big roast that she had purchased and took out the pan that she had and she cut off about three inches of the end of that roast, wrapped it up, put it in the pan, stuck it in the oven. She took that three inches of roast that she had cut off, threw it in the trash. Now the young guy was smart enough not to say what he was thinking at that point because he wanted to be married more than just one week because it flew all over him. He didn't say anything about it. But that started this ongoing process week after week. And she started this family tradition like her mom had had where every day, every Sunday, they would have roast. And he'd get up and watch and she'd cut three inches off the end of that roast and wrap it up, put it in the oven and they'd go to church. And every time she cut three inches off, she'd throw it into the trash and it flew all over him. And so finally, after about two months of that, He figured he had wasted enough money on raw roast by that time that he was going to say something. And so he said, I need to know what you're doing with that. And she said, well, I don't really know. My mama used to do it that way. When she would make roast, she'd cut three inches off the end of it and throw it away and put the rest of it in the oven. So she said, that's just part of mama's recipe. Well, that wasn't good enough for him. Now, if it had been his mama, it would have been okay. But it was her mama. It was an issue. So he decided that uh, next time he got around his mother-in-law, he's going to ask her what the deal was. Sure enough, in a few months, they had a family gathering, and it was on a Sunday, and he was made it a point to be in the kitchen when she started cooking that lunch. And sure enough, she did the exact same thing her daughter had been doing now for weeks. And so he stopped her, and he said, I need to know why you're doing that, because this is becoming a real issue in our marriage. You've taught your daughter to do that, and I'm sure there's a good reason, so I just need you to let me know. And she said, well, you know, I haven't really given it much thought. My my mom always did that when I was learning to cook. That's how she did roast. She'd cut three inches off, throw it in the trash, and she said, that's just what I've done all of our married life. Well, that wasn't enough for him. And so he decided that next time he had a chance, he was going to get with his wife's grandmother, and he's going to find out exactly what the deal was. And sure enough, family reunion came around and he went, as soon as he got there, he went straight to his grandmother-in-law and he said to her, I got to know something. I mean, he didn't say, hello, how you doing? It had been a long time. He said, I got to know what the deal is here. And she said, oh, son, that's simple. I never had a pan big enough to handle the whole roast. (laughs) Sometimes... We get locked into patterns of living that we really don't think about and don't really make a whole lot of sense, except that's just the way we've always done it. And I happen to tell you, I happen to believe you need to know that I'm not one of those who falls into that category. I don't think just because we've always done it makes good enough sense for us to keep doing it, necessarily. So today... Here we are gathered together as one big Crestwood family. And I say to you, welcome home. Isn't this great to get together at least on an occasional basis? I've already heard a number of comments from different people across the uh, spectrum of the population of this church. And 
And you've made comments that kind of lead me to believe you think this might be a good idea for us to do from time to time. As we do this, there are some things that I want us to do together as a family. And so we're going to do Lord's Supper here in just a little while. I think it's important that when we come together as a church family, that we do it as a family rather than split off into two separate services. Not that we couldn't do that and not that it's not okay for us to do that. It's just good. Maybe it's a little better, in my opinion, that we come together at the Lord's Supper and say, as a church family, we do this together as we remember why we're a family in the first place. And I also want us to celebrate together when it comes to doing baptisms. And I want us today to think about baptism. I want us to think about the why and the how. Of baptism. Okay, the why part is really pretty easy. If you take a Bible and uh, look at uh, what the early church practiced, and I'm not going to read these right now, I'm just going to point them out to you. In Acts chapter 2, verses 38 through 41, at the end of, of Pentecost, the sermon where Simon Peter came, and you remember all of that stuff, you go back and read Acts chapter 2, and you'll find that at the end of that, it says that they were baptized that day 3,000 or so. In Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40, we have the account of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And most of us will remember that story, how God makes sure that Philip gets in the right place on the road to Gaza. And the Ethiopian eunuch is out there and he's reading scripture from the Old Testament. And there's a conversion there and they find water and the eunuch says, here's water, what keeps me from being baptized? And immediately, Philip baptizes him. Acts chapter 9. We find the account where Paul, well, the guy who would become known as Paul, actually his name was Saul at that point, where he is baptized after the Damascus Road experience and he's blinded, you remember all of that? And Ananias baptizes Saul. It is the practice of the early church that we find all through Scripture that they baptized people who came to know Jesus Christ. But the best answer about why we do baptism is because Jesus told us to do it. As Baptists, we have what we call ordinances, two key teachings that come from Jesus himself. They're not really just teachings. In fact, what they are are their commands to us. One of them is the Lord's Supper. This do in remembrance of me. That's what Jesus said. But another one that we do is baptism. In Matthew chapter 28, let's just go there together. Matthew chapter 28, we know this passage as the Great Commission, but I want you to look closely at what it says. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. This is after the crucifixion and after the resurrection, before the ascension, Verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now here's the key, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. From Jesus' own mouth, a command to us that includes baptism. So when we come together, as Christian people, one of the things that we have to answer is, why do we do what we do? And when it comes to baptism, we do it because Jesus told us to do it. That's easy in Scripture. I could spend a lot more time walking through and and justifying what I'm saying here, but the fact of the matter is you have one verse from the mouth of Jesus, and that in itself is enough for us to do it. 
Now, the next question, the how part of it, is a little, uh, well, I started to say dicier, but I don't know if I can say, well, y'all danced up here. I can talk about gambling terms up here, I suppose. <laughs> it's a little more difficult for some people, at least at first glance, when it comes to the how part of baptism. We can look all across the spectrum of Christendom and different groups who do things a little bit differently than we do as Baptists, and you'll find the how of baptism includes one group of people who believe it's okay to just sprinkle water on somebody, and you'll find another group who believe it's okay if you just kind of pour water on people. But as Baptists, true to our name in the truest sense, we practice immersion. That means, well, let me just put it right there on the bottom shelf. We dunk people. We don't dip them. You dip dogs, okay? We dunk people. And true, I, I say that because it's the truest sense of the term. The, old, the New Testament term, baptism, baptism it's actually baptizo in Greek language. We pull it over into English and we just adopt it straight across. It sounds like it does in Greek pretty much like it does in English because we just borrowed it and pulled it straight over. And literally in the New Testament, the term baptizo means to dip, to immerse more specifically. It comes from a term that was used in the leather tanning industry of the first century. And so a tanner would take a piece of leather and in order to change its color, he would immerse it down into the dye. And so we pull it straight across and we could, I could spend a lot of time, I don't want to take this morning, to justify and show you throughout the New Testament that the manner of baptism historically through the New Testament and since has included in, in primarily in the New Testament, is, well not primarily, solely in the New Testament is to immerse. So as Baptists... That's the way we do baptism. That part's easy. No, nobody in here probably is really going to argue that point. But there is another part of how we do it that I want to talk about. Because I want to start something today. You knew this new preacher was going to start something sooner or later, didn't you? I want us to start a practice today about baptism. The question to think of here is who should do baptism? Not how to do it and not what is it, but who should do it. Tradition would say, well, we don't know. Well, that's really not exactly true. Tradition would say, depending on which tradition, one would say, well, only ordained people can do it. Another tradition would say, and by the way, the ordained argument here tends to be in the more liturgical uh, faith groups. In other words, if you're not a priest or an ordained pastor or maybe an ordained deacon, uh, then you can't do it. Another tradition would say, well, anybody can do it. A lot of our non-denominational church brethren would say, well, anybody can do a baptism. So what do Baptists say? And my answer to that is, Baptists agree. That's kind of like a Baptist, isn't it? Kind of not really sure what we... Be- Actually, you'll find Baptists on all sides of the fence when it comes to who can do baptism. Some churches say anybody can do it. Other Baptist churches say only ordained people can do it. Who do we say can do it? 
Let me just give you a couple of things here. First of all, the Baptist faith and message. That is that document that we have pulled together, a confession of our faith. And I want you to, I'm going to read what it says about baptism. And based on what you hear, you tell me what you think it says as to who can do this. Christian, and I'm reading straight from the Baptist faith and message. Christian baptism is the immersion of a believer in water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is an act of obedience symbolizing the believer's faith in a crucified, buried, and risen Savior, the believer's death to sin, the burial of the old life, and the resurrection to walk in newness of life in Christ Jesus. It is a testimony to his faith and the final resurrection of the dead. Being a church ordinance, it is a prerequisite to the privileges of church membership and to the Lord's Supper. What does it say about who can do it? Nothing. All right? So in other words, as a church, Crestwood can't be uh, kicked out of the Baptist group because of the way we do it as to who gets to do it. There is a set of leaflets produced by the Baptist General Convention of Texas called Baptist Distinctives. And I'll read from that so that you see where we're coming from this morning. It says this, the Baptist concept of the priesthood of all believers indicates that the local congregation can authorize any believer priest, that is, believer priest, that is, anybody, in other words, can authorize anybody to perform baptisms, not just a pastor or someone who is ordained. What I want you to hear from that is there is plenty of leeway in our official Baptist statements of faith to say to us, as a church, you can decide who gets to do baptisms. But here's the kicker for us all. Ultimately, we don't listen to what official Baptist groups tell us we have to do. We listen to what Scripture says about this. So let me give you a couple of statements from Scripture. Acts chapter 2 in verse 41, this is that ending statement to the Pentecost account in the book of Acts. And it says, so those who received his word, that is Simon Peter's, were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let me ask you, scripturally from that passage, who did the baptism? And the answer is, we don't know. It doesn't say. An argument from silence is a very weak argument. So if you try to say that only Simon Peter did it, well, first of all, he's a busy man that day to do 3,000 people in one day. We, don't, we just don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us, and by extension, it doesn't direct us at this point. Look at Acts chapter 9. This is Ananias baptizing Saul. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. Who did the baptism? It seems to indicate that Ananias, Ananias did. And you can see in Scripture, Ananias was not an ordained person. He wasn't even one of the apostles. And so now we have an argument that says it really couldn't be any believer. There's another passage about Ananias. We're not going to show it to you there, but you can write it down and go check it. Acts chapter 22 verse 12 says specifically Ananias was a righteous man. And that's how he's described for us. 
But finally, and this is the kicker of all the arguments, back to the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19. Look at verse 16 first. Go back for a second, Spencer, if you will. Verse 16, who is it that's with Jesus? The 11. There were 12 disciples, but one of them has now gone on, so to speak. Judas Iscariot. So now the 11 that are remaining are with Jesus. He goes to Galilee and now to verse 19. What does it say? Verse 19, Spencer. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Who is Jesus telling to do the baptism? If you say, careful now, let's be consistent. If you say that Jesus is saying to those 11 disciples, you are responsible for baptizing and only you, then you also have to say that Jesus is saying to those 11 and only those 11, go and make disciples. And none of us would agree with that. What we find scripturally, I believe, is plenty of leeway for us to come together as a church and say, this is how we will do it. Our tradition at Crestwood may say, cut three inches off the end of the roast and throw it away. But Scripture allows us to think about this and to do something that works. Not that the other doesn't work. Here's what I want us to do. Matter of fact, here's what we're going to do today. And if you don't like it, I want to invite you to come and sit down with me and we'll talk about it, okay? Because I don't want to cram anything down anybody's throat, but I do want us to reason together and talk through. So if this is a problem for you, you can come and talk to me, make an appointment this week, and we'll work through it. But what I want us to do today is to take these four children who have come and have said, I I have given my life to Jesus Christ, I want to follow him in baptism, and I want us to allow their fathers to baptize them. Now, here's one of the things that I will say about this as we go forward. For a father to be able to do this, first of all, fits very well in that consistency thing I was talking about. We come and we bring children up here who are babies and we say we want to dedicate these parents and this child as they go forward to help raise them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord and nurture them and all that. And as a church, we're going to help do that. So this is another logical kind of step in that process for us as a church. But in order for this to work, uh, the father is going to always need to be a, an active part of this fellowship. Okay? You can't just open it up and any father can do it any time. Because what we do find in Scripture when it comes to Ananias, it says he was a righteous man involved in God's work in the church. So those are some of the criteria. We'll, we'll work through some of that as we go forward. But for today, I want us to do this, all right? So let's celebrate. This ought to be one of the greatest celebrations we ever have in a church is when we celebrate somebody giving their life to Jesus Christ, okay? So let's do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for all that you do for us, for allowing us to participate as a family today in this high-water mark for these young Christians. We thank you. Take our worship and receive it now. In Jesus' name, amen.